Welcome to Not Cleared. I'm Morgan Worthland, the Chief of Staff at the Center for Security Policy. And I'm Matt Franklin, the digital media producer at the Center. And today on Not Cleared, we talked to Kyle Scheidler, who is the Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy. And we talked to him about the phenomenon of terrorism and how the U.S. government deals with this seemingly ever-growing threat. We touched on the importance of 9-11 and how the world handles countering terrorism. And we wrap up with a discussion of the January 6 riots and how that has impacted the U.S. intelligence service overall. And I guess we just start with what is terrorism? How is it different from other crimes? Right. Well, I mean, I think you have to go back to really the the very nature of you know, state-to-state interactions and warfare, right? So Clausewitz says warfare is politics by other means, right? And when non-state actors or groups try to get in on that uh, and they, they try to push their politics by means, by other means, uh, we typically call that terrorism, you know, and I mean, I mean means of violence in this case, right? So... Uh, this is a long tradition. It goes way back, but we first start really using the term terrorism in the French Revolution. Right? You have the the, the terror by by the French revolutionaries to to enforce their ideology and establish their their revolutionary state. It take takes hold. You know, we have a similar. You have the similar state terrorism by uh, the Bolsheviks uh, trying to establish their uh, state. But we really don't get into sort of what we think of now as modern terrorism into the late sixties early 70s. And that's where what when you close your eyes and you have a picture of terrorism and it's somebody bombing something or it's somebody hijacking a plane or it's somebody assassinating somebody, uh, that's where you get that view from. You get that view from sort of for, from four to the 70s. But prior to that period, most countries didn't have a legal definition of terrorism. They didn't have laws preventing it. I mean, obviously, they had laws preventing you from bombing things, and they had laws preventing you from murdering people, and sometimes laws against kidnapping people. But they didn't have specifically focused laws on terrorism and terrorist groups until this period of the 1970s. And so out of that, you have, you know, you have the foundation of counterterrorism as it exists uh, you know, this is the this is the time where you have the formation of like uh, the SAS and the Special Air Service with the famous uh, retaking of the Iranian embassy. You have uh, the Israeli raid on Entebbe, where they rescue uh, uh, passengers of a hijacked airplane in Uganda. And so this is really the era of terrorism and counterterrorism and what we think of. And so creating these different, uh, creating different laws to understand what this stuff is and how we, how we understand it. So there has to be a political aim attached to it. Right. So in, under U.S. federal law, terrorism is defined as violence used to intimidate uh, civilians or governments uh, to achieve a political end. Uh, and we then further divide that in the United States into international and domestic terrorism based on the nature of the perpetrators. Okay, so international, they're not in the United States. Domestic, they're U.S. citizens. Well, um, you can engage in international terrorism in the United States uh, if you are a group you are a foreign group. So a group like Al-Qaeda, which exists outside of the United States, but then infiltrates the United States in order to carry out an attack, would still be understood as, as international terrorism. But your your aims and your organization exist outside of the United States or are, or are transnational in, in, in purpose. In contrast, domestic terrorism uh, is supposed to be taken uh, conducted by uh, you know American citizens or people inside the United States who have particularly American uh, political grievances that don't relate to the rest of the world. This is important. This is an important distinction. Uh, it seems a little bit academic, but it's an important distinction for legal purposes because when we're addressing foreign terrorism, we are actually addressing. Uh, a threat to the United States as a state, 
uh, and a threat to its goals. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it has always been the case that states uh, use power to enforce their their interests uh, in ways different from how they enforce the law. So we engage with behaviors targeting al-Qaeda or the Islamic State in ways that we would never address a law enforcement problem. Right. Uh, we don't drone bank robbers in this country for obvious reasons, right? Uh, well, but part of that is because they're U.S. citizens. They, they're entitled to rights that non-U.S. citizens do not have. Yes. And, and, so, and also because uh, they... In domestic terrorism, we don't ban groups or designate groups as terrorists. We only do that on international terrorism. We and it's can't because of the First Amendment. Right, in theory. So that's what I was going to ask. How, how does the U.S. handle domestic versus foreign terrorism? Do they handle it the same way or what? And the government deals with it. Right. So going back to the 1970s, right, you had actually, most people don't know this, you had a rash of domestic terrorism in the United States from groups like the Weather Underground, uh, the Black Liberation Army, where you had, there were over a thousand bombings during this this decade. Uh, Bank robberies, attacks. um, Bombing what? Of a wide variety of corporate buildings, public buildings. Uh, You know, the U.S. Senate was bombed twice in the early 80s. Um, People don't know most of this, um, but it's true. And what were were they trying to accomplish by bombing the U.S. Senate? Right. So this was, uh, this was, you know, the period of the Vietnam War. The, you had a, a student movement which coalesced into a, you know, radical communist movement. This is the Students for Democratic Society. It evolves into the weather underground. And they uh, engage in violence, they believe, to essentially uh, bring the Vietnam War home. It was how they would have, they would have termed it. To, to engage in a, a struggle against the U.S. government uh, on behalf of their, their communist ideology. And this is understood as domestic terrorism, but this is where things get a little bit sticky because a lot of these guys, you know, traveled to places like Cuba and had relations with Cuban intelligence, uh, as did most of your terrorists in the 1970s. They had some relationship with the Soviet bloc. Uh, and, and and relations of that sort. So things get a little bit sticky there so, when you're talking about domestic versus international terrorism. But you have obvious U.S. citizens who are then going abroad uh, right. t- to so train. Our enemy at the time, the Soviet Union, um, was seeing that it would be easy to destabilize us by recruiting and teaching these homegrown terrorists, if you want to call them that, methods. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, mm-hmm. And so they had overlap in their goals. Sure. But this pretty much, you know, this fades out by the 80s and, and, and certainly the 90s. And domestic terrorism in the United States and really our understanding of terrorism at all in the United States um, really start isn't what it is now, right? We we live in a in a post nine eleven world now, where terrorism is really on the forefront of our mind. Uh, you know, we routinely see stories in the press about terrorist groups all around the all around the globe. Prior to nine eleven, that's not really what was happening. You know, the the FBI's primary uh, terrorism concern prior to nine eleven was eco terrorism with groups like the Earth Liberation Front bombing, you know, luxury car dealerships. And and uh, I think that the biggest act of uh, destruction and terrorism prior to 9-11 was, or prior to the Oklahoma City bombing, I should say, was was the burning of a forest ranger station by, mm-hmm. by some of these guys. So, I mean, not to minimize it, it was actually a pretty serious um, campaign of, of terrorism by these, these eco-terrorists, but it's not what most people have in mind now. When we think about terrorism. So is it fair to say 9-11 is the focal point in bringing all this? Right. It, it results in a major change in the way we understand terrorism uh, because, of the, because of the mass destruction and the loss of life. Right. You had at that point an attack carried out by non-state actors. Although, you know, there's some reason to believe they had some element of state help from places like Iran or elsewhere. Uh, but it kills, you know, almost 3,000 people in a few hours. Uh, an attack of the type we hadn't seen since Pearl Harbor, right? Which was a state-on-state action, right? So that was Japanese uh, Air Force bombs us, kills 3,000 people. 
And so here you had non-state actors engaging in, in a level of mass destruction that hadn't been seen since World War II, right? Major change to the way the government started thinking about terrorism, started thinking about th threats to, to, the, to the country, which is important, I think, because it, it started to shift the, the government's understanding of terrorism away from the political, right? When, when you're chasing around, you know, eco-terrorists who are, you know, burning SUVs, uh, it was understood principally as, you know, acts of criminality and violence focused on political purpose. You know, they would burn something down and then they would issue a manifesto and then you would catch them and put them on trial. And after 9-11, it was more of a focus on preventing mass casualty attacks, which is obviously important. But it shifts away the understanding of the Terror Act itself as an act of political action to an act of mass violence. And so what, that, what happens then is you have now a government focus on preventing mass casualty attacks, of which there are many different kinds. Uh, you know, your Columbine shooter, for example, although he kills many people, uh, is not a terrorist because he has no political motive. Uh, and so there's a different approach to that than there is to the, to the approach of, the, of a terrorist. What is the benefit in looking at ideology to prevent terrorist attacks versus just the tactic? Right. So if you understand terrorism as a principally political act, mm -hmm. then what the terrorist believes, their ideology is going to guide their actions. And, and this is pretty clear. I mean, you can look at different types of terrorist groups, whether they're a jihadist group like Al-Qaeda or a, you know, a, a communist group like we were talking about the Weather Underground. And the sorts of actions they engage in are driven by what they believe about the world. Right. So it... it affects their choice of targeting, who they attack, it, it, it affects how they attack, and it affects which elements of society uh, are, are being drawn into this, this conflict with the, with the terror group. Right, and part of, so jihadists are unique in that they will commit suicide, which other terrorists hadn't done, which is part of why 9-11 was so... Right. I mean, you do have you, you do have suicide attacks by, for example, the Tamale Tigers in Sri Lanka, mm. uh, which are which are not jihadists. Uh, but it was very rare up until, you know, the, the real rise of Islamic terrorism. And then it became increasingly common because of that ideological motive. And there's there's an ideological element uh, within the Islamist worldview, which which holds um, dying in the act of attacking the uh, infidel. Uh, to be valuable. Right. Okay, can you talk about how 9-11, other than making the United States focus more on countering terrorism, what, um, I guess, concrete changes did you did that? Do you remember 9-11 or like pre-9-11? Yeah, I would, that'd be a, curious, a yeah. question I would have for you guys. Is what, what, do you, what do you remember about 9-11? I just remember my mom and dad crying a lot. And oh, I was so on their bed. You, how old were you? I was four. Okay, I think I was seven or eight and i remember i remember watching it and just being really i didn't under it's stupid now but i did not understand that there were people in the buildings mm -hmm. just because i didn't it didn't occur to me that what was going on until until we started seeing them jump you know and we watched the second plane fly into the building but it was very confusing obviously um but by the end of the day you know words like hijack and terrorism mm -hmm. were under we talked about it at school and but it was very, it was just, I don't, I remember we flew in November after 9-11 and the security was vastly different and, and that scared me. Um, just seeing all the hoops we had to jump through, it made, it kind of reminded me that, oh yeah, people just, you know, flew a plane into a building. Why are we getting on a plane? And you said that you guys like couldn't imagine. I feel like, isn't that also the case? Because wasn't it, the term was like failure of imagination mm -hmm. or something that the U.S. government said that even the highest of high U.S. Army government officials, whatever, they couldn't even imagine something that bad happening. Right, even though there was there was intelligence about a jihadist plot out of, I think it was Malaysia or the Philippines, to do this exact same thing. Uh, 
so <laughs> it wasn't like it had not uh, people were not aware of it but it did it did break the paradigm uh, because you know I was talking about that 1970s vision of terrorism where we got all our concepts and the the concept of 1970s hijacking was the hijackers take the plane they redirect it towards one of the friendly countries they're working with you know if you were in uh, Europe or the Middle East that was going to be Algeria or it was going to be Iraq or something like that uh, or you know in, in the US it was going to be Cuba <laughs> and uh, everybody was just just if you were patient enough um, they would get to where they were going and they would get off after they made their political statement mm-hmm. right and so that was why uh, in, in large part the 9-11 terror attack changed a lot of things because the um, the understanding of what a hijacking was and what could be done with it and why it would be done uh, tra- changed dramatically. Was there even airport security before? I don't remember flying. <laughs> there was. Uh, there wasn't. Act- I mean, my, my parents, for example, remember a period where there was basically no airport security at all. Uh, and... Uh, you know, you didn't have metal detectors and stuff, but certainly before 9-11, you, you had metal detectors and you couldn't bring certain things on pl- planes, but you could bring a lot more than you could bring, bring now. Yeah. <laughs> you could bring a box cutter, right? That was not illegal. You could bring various knives. That was not illegal because nobody had thought about it in this context before. Um, but then it's interesting because you saw jihadists in Europe, especially attacking the security lines. They evolve their tactics to fit the security situation. That's right. And that's the, I mean, that's the heart of terrorism is you are attacking soft civilian targets to make a point to the hardened government. Mm-hmm. All right. It's, it's hard in the modern political state to attack governments. They've got a lot of resources. They've got intelligence agencies. They've got police. They've got armies. They've got guns. They've got fences. They've got walls. Um, most civilian life you don't have that you know and so you can make a point to the government by targeting what's not protected and you know even in places like Israel which is a very very hardened state you know and they've done a lot to I mean you have to go through metal detectors in Israel to go into a mall right Uh, and you know they have a very good uh, defense counterterrorism mindset in Israel uh, but there's always some soft target, and they and they will always move to that target and attack it, because it's the it's the nature of the beast. Right. Okay. So, in recent, since the Biden administration took office, they have repeatedly made the claim that white supremacism is the most lethal threat. That's a quote from President Biden to the United States. Um, Attorney General Merrick Garland has cited. Uh, what is it now? It's like a six word homegrown domestic extremist white something. Um, basically white supremacism right. same as the greatest national security threat. What do you think about that? Would you agree with that statement and why not? No. Why or why not? <laughs> no, I, I don't agree with that statement for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, um, I think it gets into this greater problem of conflating quote-unquote extremism with terrorism, and we can talk about that. But second of all, it um, plays upon um, a deliberate obfuscation of what is terrorism and political violence and what qualifies as a white supremacist extremist or terrorist group. Or, or individual. So to give you an example, the um, Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, which monitors white supremacists and, and other groups, um, did a report um, this year, I think it was this year or late last year, uh, about political extremist killings in the United States. Now, they didn't say terrorism. They said political extremist killings, of which they counted 17 and I went through the list and examined it, and when you actually examined it for you know evidence of a political motive, you got down to about five actual incidents. So 
it's a positive thing. It's a positive thing in the United States that the probability that you will be killed for your politics is actually insanely low, right? Compared to the, much of the rest of the world, it's very, very low. The the threat from terrorism, uh, and I, you know, I say this as a job. My my job is to is to you know focus on this issue, and it's an important issue. But the probability of it is actually remains very low. It's a low probability, high impact event, right? An act of terrorism. So the this notion that there are uh, you know, white supremacist attacks taking place all the time in the United States is simply false. Uh, what do you have that takes place in the United States that gets categorized as white supremacist attacks are either gangland violence by uh, prison gangs which are organized along racial lines uh, or um, and, and engage in criminal violence, which is, you know, people killing, you know, rival meth dealers and things like that. And they get labeled as white supremacists because their gang symbol is, is a swastika or something like that, uh, which isn't to say they're a problem, but it's not a terrorism problem. Uh, and then you have, of course, hate crimes, uh, hate being a emotional motivation, uh, but it's not terrorism. It's not a political motivation. You know, uh, if an individual racist attacks another man because he doesn't uh, like that person's race, it's obviously a heinous crime. But there's no political motive. He has no agenda that he is trying to achieve. Right. He's simply engaging in hatred. We, we uh, you know, that's why we call it a hate crime, because we understand it's an emotional motive, not a political motive. But if you look at the way the Biden administration has been talking about this issue, they are conflating all of these things together in order to push white supremacy as as the number one terror threat. You know, so they they openly conflate hate crimes with terrorism, even though they're legally separate things. Uh, and they, they do this for this political purpose. Right. How do Garland's comments saying that white supremacism is this giant problem that needs to be attacked? How does that affect what the CIA, FBI, all the government agencies that should be preventing 9-11s and stuff like that from happening? Does that have any impact? I mean, in theory, it shouldn't. Sure. No, it absolutely does. Uh, you know, the... Uh, because, and this is one of the challenges, right? Because terrorism is a political event, it the, the countering of terrorism is also very political in its nature. And so when you have the political authorities in the United States telling law enforcement and intelligence, these are the threats you should be focused on, these are threats you should not focus on, uh, no matter how big our uh, federal law enforcement and intelligence bureaucracy is, and frankly, I think it's too big, uh, but no matter how big it is, it can't cover everything. So they're going to focus on things that they get rewarded for, that they get larger budgets for, uh, and they're not going to get, fo- they're not going to get focused, they're not going to focus on things that they get called in front of Congress to explain. So for example, uh, despite the fact that uh, a, a black identity extremist follower of the Nation of Islam uh, is the only person who recently killed a Capitol Police officer, uh, which he did in, in an attack where he ran, ran, rammed him with a car and then came out with, a with I think it was a machete, uh, wound, wounding and killing, uh, wounding one and killing one before being, before being shot. Uh, they are totally focused on January 6th, right. where no Capitol Police officers were killed. Uh, on that day uh, by that incident. So that is a question of focus, right? You are interested in one incident. You're not interested in the other incident because of the political motivation perceived uh, by the perpetrators. um, Mayor Garland has said many times that it was the single greatest threat to democracy January 6th. And DOJ has requested $85 million in additional funding, um, including for the investigations of those that stormed the Capitol, $40 million in aid for U.S. attorneys to manage the caseloads, $45 million for FBI domestic terrorism investigations. DHS has established a new domestic terrorism branch to gather intelligence um, on social media. And the DHS annual assessment this year warned that violent white supremacy was the most persistent and, le- and lethal threat in the homeland. Does that mean just domestically? Because what about threats in the homeland from foreign actors? So this is a, this is an important thing to keep in mind. When they talk about domestic terrorism, 
by the nature of the way they define things, they are not talking about, uh, you know, they're not talking about future 9-11s, Matt. They're not talking about al-Qaeda. They're not talking about Islamic State. They're not even talking about American citizens who may uh, may be uh, indoctrinated into that ideology and support it. They define all of that as foreign terrorism. Even if you are an individual who has never been overseas and uh, if, if you have if you are ideologically motivated um, by by uh, jihad, they will classify you as a foreign terror threat, not a domestic terror threat. So so people have made the point that there's no reference to, you know, jihadist ideology or, or foreign terrorism in this most recent strategy. But that's that's to be expected. Uh so okay, but they—I mean, no matter how much money you give them, they only have so many agents. So right. if you're telling them to focus on this domestic stuff, they're not going to be focusing on the other stuff as much. But that's also important because th- there are several headlines that talk about the most lethal threat or the greatest threat to national security. And there, one study um, in in May, the DHS and FBI released a study saying that lone wolf actors pose the greatest domestic terrorism threat and that 2019 was the most lethal year for domestic extremist attacks since 1995. Now, when people think about terrorism, obviously you would include 9-11, which is the greatest casualty terrorist attack ever. But if you exclude that, then it changes things, right? It does. It changes things quite a bit. But so when you're saying the overall greatest domestic terrorism threat, people assume that that means that it's so problematic, it's worse than any other foreign terrorism threat, which is not entirely true is what you're saying. I mean, they have they have started to openly say that it is, in fact, the greatest threat since 9-11, which I which I think is unjustifiable. Uh, And and you asked me another reason why I don't think it's as significant a threat as as they portray it to be. And part of the reason is because actually our federal law enforcement does a really good job stopping it. Uh, a lot of these uh, white supremacist groups that are political extremists uh, are heavily infiltrated. Uh, most of the arrests that you see are arrests that were conducted um, when you know the FBI had the group heavily infiltrated, uh, was, was there every step of the way. There was no probability of any, of any actual violence. You know, I mean, if you look at this most recent situation where the FBI made a number of arrests related to an apparent threat to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Uh, And as we're recording this, um, I saw an article pointing out that there were 12 informants in this group. Wow. Uh, Only six people have been indicted. So there are more informants, uh, more informants in the group than there are people being prosecuted for the crime. Uh, that is a problem pretty well under control, uh, in my view, um, by, by, you know, that, that's a level of state power, uh, in, in, in suppressing a threat, which is almost worrisome in the sense that you're spending 12 informant, you know, you're, you get 12 informants in this one group. What aren't you watching? You know, if you're, if you're, if you've got that much resources developed in this one, this one area. And so, you know. It's, it's to their credit that they are good at addressing this issue. But, you know, I am concerned about those issues that they're not addressing, that they're not focused on, that the 9-11s that we don't know about, you know, to, to, to go back to Matt's point. Okay, so let's play devil's advocate for a minute here. Um, January 6th is sort of the, some people say, the new 9-11. Um, and, and they would say that it was a terrorist attack, it was planned out. And the political goal was to disrupt the counting of the electoral ballots, which they did disrupt it. It didn't. Um, some people say it was more ceremonial than anything else. I mean, I, I did see something to the effect that there is not a single uh, FBI field office which is not investigating. Right. Uh, this I mean, incident. They have made several arrests. I mean, they have they have arrested more people. Uh, for the January 6th incident in the federal federal agencies, then they have made federal arrests for all of the rioting in, over over the course of the, the 2020 summer uh, by a factor of not quite double. You know, it's like 500 and something January 6th uh, protesters versus something like 340 or 390 um, federal prosecutions in, in, in the riots uh, 
the Antifa BLM led riots. It feels extreme that every FBI field office would be looking into this. Yeah, I uh, I mean it's 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 truly remarkable. Um, well, maybe okay. for an, for an incident in which there was no loss of there was no criminal loss of life. So, meaning that the the Capitol police officer that was killed or was reported as killed died of a stroke. Right. The the uh, the Capitol police officer Brian Sicknick, uh, who there was a, a law enforcement leak to the New York Times alleging that he had been bludgeoned to death by a, a fire extinguisher, uh, thanks to the great work of Julie Kelly at the American Greatness publication. We now know that that was never true, um, and he in fact died of natural causes, according to the. Uh, medical examiner uh, the day after. And then Ashley Babbitt was one of the protesters and was shot by... Right. She was shot by a law enforcement officer. That law uh, law enforcement officer was ruled uh, as a justifiable homicide in in the the follow-up investigation. Right. So we all agreed that it was illegal. It was bad, right? But the case that they are making is that it was interfering to try to disrupt a democratic process... It looked terrible, um, the imagery of people just being able to freely storm our capital and attack our democracy, and it was motivated by white supremacists because they had nooses at the capital. And Well, that's, the, well, that's one of the interesting jumps that you get right. to, which is, um, I mean, if you look at the incident, its primary motivation appears to have been uh, claims of... Um, election integrity uh that, that the elections were illegitimate that, that, that there was cheating that appears to be the motivation which is not a racialist motivation and really um except they they sort of argue that it is for some reason um but but it doesn't appear to be racialist but but still they get labeled as white supremacist which gets to what i was talking about earlier where you have this you know uh this catch-all term for anything that, that they don't like gets gets defined in this way and uh you know, it's it's um, concerning in that sense. Right. But why would you disagree that it's the that January 6th? I mean, what's your take on January 6th? I'll put it that way. So obviously you had a protest which um, became an unlawful assembly. There was violence against police officers. That is to be condemned. Uh, they did uh, force their way into the U.S. government property. That is to be condemned. Uh, but if you live in the Beltway, you know uh, that rowdy protests force their way into government buildings, not uncommonly. You know, uh, around here, um, you know, the the Kavanaugh hearing was a great example where, you know, there was an unruly crowd trying to force its way into the Supreme Court uh, during uh, during that period. Uh, There are, you know, the occupation of various Senate and congressional offices by a variety of groups who then refuse to leave. This this happens on a semi-regular basis. And also the Capitol Police are not exactly the Secret Service. They're more, you know, they're more similar to TSA or... They're not extremely sophisticated, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of Capitol Police officers um, man a man a magnetometer, a metal right. detector. Yeah. I mean, that, that isn't to say they don't have specialized branches and that they don't do other work, but but yeah, I mean... They were not prepared to handle that kind of crowd or to prevent people from entering the building, but it wasn't that the protesters or the those that stormed the building were so sophisticated that they overcame a... a right, I mean, there was no, you know... There was no failure of imagination, right? Right. Uh, it was it was a, lar- a very very large uh, r- crowd that was rowdier than was expected. Uh, it it uh, the interaction between police and protesters when police uh, did begin to use non lethal munitions um, did not go the way they expected. Uh, for example, uh, so clearly there was a failure. There was a number of failures there, but. And who is responsible for the Capitol Police? So for those who don't understand how this works, the Capitol Police are totally governed by uh, Congress itself. Um, specifically the leadership. Specifically the leadership. So, you know, you've got you've got uh, Nancy Pelosi on the House side. And 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 we do know that, you know, the President Trump at the time had said, you know, you're going to have these huge crowds, you're gonna, you, you know, we should have the National Guard ready to go. And they, they those requests were rejected. I think because of political biases by, you know, folks like Pelosi. So, uh, you know, and that gets back to the, the, to the point of, you know, 
these questions are inherently political. Right. When you get into these questions. The people that were responsible for security are not necessarily going to investigate themselves for the failures that happened. The real failure, you know. That's right. And and, and, and Congress and its its various appendages being immune to FOIA requests, you, you can't even really have a successful attempt to get to the bottom of who made what decision and why and and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, and now they're going to have this this commission. I think it's going to be, you know, more theater in order to play up this idea of this incident being the worst thing uh, ever uh, instead of what it should be about, which is trying to figure out what happened, try to figure out what mistakes were made in the bureaucracy, who made poor choices, who made bad decisions, uh, and failed to contain a a riotous crowd, right. right? That's that's a legitimate issue. Uh, law enforcement needs to be able to uh, secure its build, buildings. It needs to be able to deal with riotous cl- crowds effectively, and they failed to do that. That's a major issue. Uh, but it is not the worst thing since 9-11. Full stop. Do you think it's a good idea that the Speaker of the House has that much pull when it comes to something like the Capitol Police because these are just going to be ultimately elected bureaucrats that may or may not have a background in law enforcement or anything. Yeah. I mean, I think so. (laughs) That's a bigger like principles question. I think at the end of the day, the notion that each branch of government has control over its, uh, the law enforcement body that protects it. I think that is actually right. Uh, I think Congress should be responsible for its own security. Uh, as the Supreme Court is. The Supreme Court has a Supreme Court p- police. Uh, and, of course, then the, the executive branch, the president, has all other law enforcement and military power in the United States. So, um, But Secret Service can override the president, right? In terms in safety. In terms of safety, yeah, he, he they... I, I don't... I would be curious to see to what degree this has ever been tested, mm-hmm. but... Uh, certainly their protocols are that, you know, in, in times of danger, they will make decisions before the president can even respond. Right. Uh, you know, th- a great example of this, right, is we, you, you want to talk about um, riotous crowds threatening um, branches of government. Very few people want to talk about the Washington, D.C. BLM riots, where a crowd occupied Lafayette Square, uh, launched attacks on law enforcement, burnt, tried to burn down uh, you know, that, that iconic church across the street from the White House, and the president was forced into his security bunker. Uh, so, I mean, I'm pretty sure that disrupted uh, the, the process of government and government officials on that day. Have we seen arrests from that? We have not. Well, what w- what is the difference? So there were a bunch of protesters, probably some more ideologically motivated than others, I guess, in the square, right? Sure. But you could say it's a riot. It's not, it's not terrorism because there's no real political aim. It's just people getting out of control. Right. I mean, it, it was led by it was led by, you know, Antifa aligned groups and, and BLM groups. And I think particularly in the case of Antifa, you know, we've made the case at the Center for Security Policy that that they have overseas roots, that they should face some kind of designation. But, uh, yeah, it, you're right. It was a riot. It was not a terror attack as, as right. traditionally understood. But and what is the difference between that and what happened at the Capitol? Why was that a terrorist act and not a riot? Simply because they were interrupting a democratic process which was the goal of the rally or the, or pro- i guess the rally was to protest it not to disrupt it necessarily well i mean uh, yeah it was to it was to protest the ongoing certification you know the certainly doj prosecutors have made the argument that there was a conspiracy by members uh of the protest to disrupt the the incident uh, the, the the ongoing certification uh, but whether that was, you know, they have not proved yet in court that that was that was what happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to compare those two events because you have two branches of government facing similar assaults. Um, you know, the same kind of you know attacks on police, the same kind of uh, overrunning of barricades. Uh, obviously, in the case of the White House, the barricades held. Uh, and the, the law enforcement did a did a better job, uh, 
but the motives of the of the rioters were not that you know the motives of the rioters were not that different and at the time i correct me if i'm wrong i remember um that you had access to some flyers and some information from these groups going around that were explicitly saying white house siege yeah they they explicitly organized and called for a siege of the white house Mm -hmm. i mean if if you want to throw back in history the last time that happened was 18 what 1814 the british troops burned the white house to the ground uh (laughs) um obviously not the same incident same same uh comparison but you know that it was a real event. It was really planned by very serious organizations uh, who had been organizing riots all over the country for all summer. Right. Uh, successfully. Successfully, and the uh, federal law enforcement was excoriated for its defense of the White House, uh, for their decisions to to use certain types of non-lethal munitions, uh, for example. Um, None of which has been, you know, nobody has said anything about that uh, as it relates to to the Capitol Police in January 6th. Using tear gas and other other. Right. And there. So these were groups that were organized. What group had organized the rally? The January 6th rally? Yeah. I have no idea. Um, I don't know that anybody really knows. I mean. You you had obviously the, the the actual rally itself and the, and and but who organized who explicitly organized the the move on on the U.S. Capitol itself? I don't know the answer to that. But is that an important part of proving a domestic terrorism case that there's a larger organization? So that's a good point, um, which gets to what it means to be a criminal organization right. or a terrorist organization. Under the law, there's no formal requirement to define an organization other than two or more people <laughs> with an objective. Um, I mean, that's explicit in, in our laws about terrorism, that, that to be a terrorist organization is actually not that formal. Um, you know, we think that you have to have a name and you have to have a flag and you have to have a banner and you have to have X number of people. That's none of that is true under, under the, you know, you can form a, you can form a criminal conspiracy on the fly and, uh, uh, you know, and, and be charged accordingly. Uh, so, so yeah, so you have to understand that when, when they're talking about, you know, organizations behind this thing, you know, it doesn't have to be that formal. What do you think ties into the drastic difference in media coverage with the various attacks that we've talked about? January 6th versus specifically Noah Green, the guy that rammed into the Capitol police officer the Friday before Easter. Just nobody really had heard of the latter, but everybody still to this day is talking about January 6th. Yeah, I mean, the media's bias when it comes to covering terrorism is now so readily apparent that it's almost a punchline. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when you have one, we have one of these incidents and everybody is looking at it and it's, you know, waiting to find out who the perpetrator is going to be announced to be. And you can almost see the media's interest fade away uh, if it's not uh, going to be a perpetrator who easily fits into this narrative of, of white supremacist, extremist terrorist. Um, like the supermarket shooting in Colorado. It's a perfect example. You know, the super, super supermarket shooting uh, in Colorado where it was, a, I think it was a Syrian refugee, if I remember correctly. Um it goes just nobody wants to talk about it anymore right and so much of what you know here's a little here's another little trick that most people don't know is so much of our academic databases on terrorism are actually informed by the media right uh there's no real good government database on terrorism that is you know only using government records uh, most of those databases are done by academic researchers who are scouring the media and cataloging events as they see them. So you have a sort of self-licking ice cream cone where the media will report on attacks or not report on attacks, um, and it will characterize the nature of those attacks as, you know, terrorism or white supremacist terrorism or what have you, and those will get recorded as incidents you know, in academic research, and then it will go on to be quoted by the media 
uh, as evidence that, you know, white supremacy is the biggest terrorism threat the country is facing. So the the role of the media in how it talks about terrorism, how it uh, how it reports or fails to report on, on terrorism uh, is actually a far greater um, it has much more impact on on how poor our 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 collective understanding in this country of, of various threats is. Okay, so given that this is what you study all the time, what is you make your, me sound so boring? <laughs> what is your greatest concern? What do you think is the greatest threat, whether foreign or domestic, right now to the country? Uh, I mean, I think it's our 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 government's incompetence. Well, other than that, which, which <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can remove that because um, their um, their incompetence and also their bias is is making the whole country more dangerous. It's making everything more dangerous because they are focusing resources in places where it's it's inefficient. They're not investigating threats that are more serious, and I'll get into which I think those are in a second. Um, and so, it, it, and, and it's fostering division, right? Because you have more and more Americans who are uh, observing their their what seems like bias. You know, we talked a lot about January sixth, so they're seeing things like that and saying, you know, federal law enforcement is biased. I don't trust them. You know, uh, when the reality is there are significant threats that do require uh, federal law enforcement intervention. Uh, you know. You talk about groups like Islamic State, Al Qaeda, that have, you know, billions and millions of dollars in resources. Resources. They have lots of capabilities. Uh, you know, they can. They have relationships with certain friendly governments. You know, like Iran or what have you, where they can do things like get false passports. They can move across borders. They can uh, recruit people and, and train people and, and engage in, in high-profile mass casualty attacks. And we're not we're not focusing on that to the degree that we should be. And when you, you don't, when you stop focusing on that issue, you get nine 11 you get, you know, the, the Paris attacks, uh, for the people who remember that back in, I think it was 2015, you know, nine individuals sent an, you know, set an entire city on fire, uh, killed hundreds of people. So do you think the terrorists are also taking note of what the DOJ is prioritizing? So not only is it frustrating to people that think there are in the United States, bigger threats than, white supremacists and whatnot. Oh, Our sure. Ter- terrorists oh, also sure, yeah. licking their chops and saying, oh, the United States is prioritizing this. I think so. Uh, you know, we you can look at jihadist uh, online magazines and stuff, and, and they just think it's, you know, they just think it's hilarious. They're just, you know, super excited about uh, how, how badly we are, you know, sort of tearing up the political fabric of the country by, you know, trying to label each other terrorists. Um, so all that said... Uh, what do I think are the actual most significant threats? So in terms of capabilities, I would put, obviously, some of those jihadist groups I just mentioned at the top of the list. Uh, they they wouldn't qualify as a domestic terror group. They qualify as a foreign terrorist group. But if you're on the other end of it, terrorism is terrorism. Uh, so I would consider them probably the most capable threat. Uh, after that, I am very concerned with what the government calls uh, anarchist extremists, but which most of America knows as Antifa. Uh, after the 2020 summer riots, uh, they've learned a great deal. They've developed a lot of capabilities. Uh, we are seeing a resurgence in transnational cooperation and and what they call solidarity between anarchist uh, extremist groups. Uh, we saw these, uh, a successful reported attack on a defense contractor uh, where a anarchist group um, set fire to their fleet of vans. Uh, it, and and so they're learning quite a bit, and also they're getting frustrated with the uh, the lack of interest or the, the, the way that the riots and stuff have fallen off uh, since the Biden administration took power. So they're getting frustrated in that sense, which may lead them to, to moving to an underground uh, um, terrorism posture, and I and I 
I use the I would use the example of the you know the 1970s for that right where you had you know the you know the students for democratic society they were the, in the weather underground and they were fostering protests and then they were fostering riots and they weren't getting the reaction that they wanted uh, and and they went underground and started engaging in actual bombings so that is that is a major concern of mine that that, that we will see that similar trend uh, play out this time it would be fair to say that the government isn't prioritizing all those things that you just talked about as much as they should not to be too morbid, but is it going to take a terrorist attack by one of them to open the government's eyes a little more and say, hey, maybe we should be putting some resources elsewhere? I don't know if it would work. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it would wake them up. Uh, you know, I mean, you have, you know, you, you're, you're comparing, uh, you know, a movement that, you know, burned billions of dollars of property across the country over a period of months that laid siege to police stations and, and federal buildings for months at a time. Uh, and you're comparing that with a large group of protesters who got rowdy on a single day. And your and, and the one is the worst threat since the Civil War. And the other is, you know, there's barely a federal official who, who can, you know, say the word Antifa without, you know, blushing. So, you know, it's just a totally different um, view of, of what constitutes a threat uh, and what needs to be dealt with um, that I, you know, I, and that blindness, right? The blindness, which says we put 12 informants in one group and we can't even manage to make an arrest in the other. That's dangerous, really. The, right. blind, the blindness is what is the most dangerous. We should note that Kyle has a book. What's the name, the title? Uh, so I am editor of the center's recent publication, Unmasking Antifa, uh, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. We look at uh, the movement known as Antifa from an organizational perspective, from a historical perspective, uh, from a political perspective. We provide ideas about tactics that police should be considering uh, and how uh, society, civil society groups can respond as well. So it, it is, is really a, a whole approach for, for dealing with this, with this uh, issue. And that's available on Amazon or you can visit securefreedom.org. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you. <laughs>